Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Liz Moody Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Moody, and I'm a best-selling author and longtime journalist. This podcast is all about helping you live your healthiest, happiest life, whether we're hacking our circadian rhythms to get the best sleep ever, discovering the secrets to productivity and time management, or learning how to get out of our biggest slumps. And yes, those are all real episodes, so if any of those topics sound good to you, scroll on back in the archives. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Judd Brewer to the podcast today. Dr. Brewer is an internationally renowned psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and New York Times bestselling author. He's an associate professor at Brown University's School of Public Health and Medical School, and he serves as the chief medical officer at ShareCare, where he developed the Unwinding Anxiety app. He has published two bestselling books, The Craving Mind and Unwinding Anxiety, and his newest book is called The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop, and it comes out on January 30th, and it is jam-packed with amazing research and action steps, which I know that we all love. I have been looking for a guest to come on and talk about cravings, why we have them, what to do about them, both longer term and in the moment, for a long time, and I was so thrilled when I found Dr. Judd and his research. This is not an episode about weird fad diets or deprivation. Rather, it's a deep dive into the science of cravings and how we can give our bodies what they truly need. And the cool thing is the science behind cravings widens into the science behind unhelpful habits generally. And once we understand that science, we are empowered to break any habit that we don't want to have and set up any habit that we do want to have. It is so, so fascinating. In this episode, Dr. Judd and I get into why willpower is a myth from a neuroscience perspective, the neuroscience behind why diets don't work the role of the orbitofrontal cortex in habit formation and how to use it to your advantage, the surprising reason why we crave what we crave, how to recognize when you're eating from sadness, stress, or boredom, and how to stop, a three-step process to break any unhelpful habit, why counting calories is harmful, not helpful from a neuroscience perspective. The science behind this is so, so interesting. Specific advice to stop snoozing, to be on your phone less, to stay up less late, to procrastinate less, to buy less things that you do not need, and so much more. As always, we would both love to hear your thoughts as you're listening, so definitely screenshot and tag us on Instagram. I am at Liz Moody, and Dr. Brewer is at Dr.Judd. There are so many amazing tidbits shared in this episode. So if there's anybody in your life that you think could benefit, which I feel like is pretty much all of us, definitely share a link with them. Also, I just want to thank everyone really quickly for your support on my book launching in Target, which was such a dream, and my Today Show appearance, which was an amazing way to kick off 2024. It was unbelievable. It was so exciting. A Hundred Ways to Change Your Life has been everywhere recently. I've been getting tagged in so many stories, and it just makes me so happy that so many of you are using it to kick off your 2024. It really is the perfect New Year's book. It has a 100 science-backed tips that each take about five minutes to read that will change truly every single part of your life. We have 18 different categories. We have longevity. We have gut health. We have relationships. We have friendships. We have energy, how to sleep better, how to wake up better. We cover every single facet of your life, or at least I tried to. If you're interested in snagging a copy for yourself, you can now get it in stores at Target, which is wild to say. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. I saw it 
in the display window at a Barnes and Noble recently, and I squealed. It was so, so exciting. And you can get it at most other booksellers, small bookstores, and you can, of course, get it at 100waystochangeyourlife.com. Thank you so much for all of your messages and your reviews and just sharing the real results that you're seeing with the book. It is so, so immensely gratifying. Okay, let's get right into it with Dr. Judd Brewer. Well, Dr. Judd, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm such a huge fan of your work, and I'm so excited to dive into habits and cravings and all of that stuff today. Well, thanks for having me. Can you start us off just diving right in from a neuroscience perspective? Why don't diets work? Well, <laughs> let's start with this thing called willpower. Have you heard of willpower? I've heard of it. Yeah. It's funny. Neuroscientists seem to not have heard of it. And I say that <laughs> in the sense that if you look at all the equations and the models for how we form habits and importantly, how we break habits, they don't include variables for the word willpower. Kind of interesting, huh? So from a storytelling standpoint, we like to tell ourselves stories that we just need more willpower. And companies like to tell us stories about that too, because they're like, oh, the diet is correct. You just need to have more willpower. Oh, and if it didn't work, you should sign up for another year. Or maybe you should just sign up for a lifetime because you really suck at willpower, right? They're really good at making us feel bad about ourselves and that there's something wrong with us. As an example, I wrote a book on anxiety and it's really interesting to look at the difference between eating and anxiety because anxiety is often something that we feel like happens to us. Whereas willpower, we feel like that's our problem. You know, like there's something that we've done wrong with eating. So it's like anxiety is it's something I have to deal with, whereas eating is something that I have to work on, implying something that's wrong with me, aka where do I fill up on willpower? Getting into the nitty gritty around the science, willpower is more myth than muscle. That's the bottom line. Diets don't work when they rely on willpower. And that is, I don't know, 99% of diets because they say, just follow the formula, just follow whatever the diet du jour is. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I have some questions on willpower, but I want to stick on the topic of diets for a second. Okay. There's a few other reasons that you touched on in your book that dieting is essentially an unproductive way to get in touch with what our body wants, what our body needs. And a few I want to highlight are, one, you talked about how foods are essentially engineered to be incredibly crave-worthy and incredibly addictive. Can you speak to that for a second? Yes. And to be clear, some of these fall into the food-like object category. <laughs> My favorite peer-reviewed journal, The Onion, <laughs> you know, they had a headline that said Dorito celebrates its one millionth ingredient. And so the idea there is, so certainly Doritos have calories, Cheetos have calories, but in, it, you barely make it into the category of food because, you know, other than calories, I'm not sure there's anything in there that's helpful for us. And that's the extreme, obviously. People engineer foods and they process foods and they pack them together in this perfect formula that gets us addicted. In fact, I don't remember when this was first described, but their food engineers actually call it the bliss point where they mix together. You need the perfect balance between salt, sugar, and fat and your body. It's like dopamine extravaganza explosion fireworks in your brain. 
And that's not about health. That's not about uh, eating until you're full. That's about getting us to consume as much as possible. That's what the engineering is all about. Because the bottom line is, the more we eat, the more they make. Uh, you know, so that Lay's potato chip, bet you can't eat just one. You know, fun trivia fact, it was uh, coined the same year that Weight Watchers was founded, 1963. <laughs> so this engineering thing has been going on for a while and it's only turbocharged more recently. And then the other thing that stuck with me from your book about why diets don't work is that you have this incredibly complex process happening in your orbitofrontal cortex. Can you speak to what is going on there when we are confronted with foods that we crave? Sure. So orbitofrontal cortex, I use that term just so I can sound smart. <laughs> Did I sound smart when I said it? Oh, absolutely. The orbitofrontal cortex is an anatomical description for a part of our prefrontal cortex. And that part of the brain is instrumental in determining how rewarding something is. It's kind of like a judge at a contest. Imagine we go to a chocolate contest, we get to sample a bunch of chocolates, and then we get to judge which one we like the most. Well, that's what our brain is doing all the time in the service of efficiency, because we don't have time every day to relearn every behavior that we do. We have to determine how rewarding something is, and then we can lay it down in memory as like, oh, I like that. I don't like that. I think of it as set and forget. You set the habit like, oh, I like – it could be you compare milk chocolate to dark chocolate, and for me, dark chocolate wins. It's more rewarding. And then you add in some sea salt. You add in a little cayenne pepper. And then certain ones have certain mouthfeels. For anybody that likes chocolate, you know what I'm talking about. We can set up this exquisite reward hierarchy. That's what our order of frontal cortex is doing. It's setting up this reward hierarchy. So when given a choice between two foods, we can quickly pick. And I can say, well, no, nope, no milk chocolate for me. Thank you. Because I've eaten it and I've compared it to eating dark chocolate. Just using that as an example, does that make sense in terms of how important the orbitofrontal cortex is? Yes, that makes sense. So we set this reward hierarchy so that we can make decisions quickly. You know, we prefer this food over this food. And then we actually lay those down as habits to the point where we're not even paying attention to how rewarding a food is. We just see it and we eat it. And that's what habit is all about. Uh, definition of habit is doing something automatically. But that's in the service of efficiency. So our brains don't have to think about things. Now, we can see how this becomes problematic when it comes to eating and setting up eating habits. So the habit could be overeating, it could be consuming junk food, it could be eating when we're bored, it could be emotional eating, it could be all these things that we do when we're not actually hungry. When we're hungry, there's going to be a drive to eat that helps us with survival. But if we are in the clean plate club, for example, where we've just been trained, like I was my mom was the single mom of four kids. And so we all dove for the food so we could get enough. And so it's like, you're going to eat everything on your plate. That was just the way, you know, we didn't waste food. I'm sure many people grew up that way, right? Don't waste food. So being a member of the clean plate club, somebody could just be in the habit of finishing their plate, even when they're not hungry. There's an example of a habit. It's not a survival thing. It's just a habit that gets set up that way. And so this orbitofrontal cortex 
it's like, okay, that's how strong that reward is. And then it forgets about it. And so we could set that clean plate club habit up in childhood. And then 30 years later, we're wondering why we're struggling when we're overeating. It's because it's a habit. Okay. A few things. One, because I feel like a lot of people listening, certainly my instinct right now is to begin to reflect back on the moments in my childhood that might have led to how I eat and how I approach food today. But you say Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't do that. Can you explain why? (laughs) Yeah. So willpower is not in the equations for habit change and neither his childhood. It's not entirely true. Childhood or anything else in our past is what helps determine the reward value of something. I'll give a concrete example. So I had a patient who was about 30 years of age who came to me for binge eating disorder. She would binge on entire large pizzas 20 out of 30 days a month. She'd been doing this for a while. It turns out, so in her childhood, her mom had emotionally abused her and she had found the only thing that she truly had some control over was eating. As she described it, she said, I would eat to numb myself. She would have these negative emotions come up and the only way she had learned how to deal with them was to eat. And this was as a kid. And then that compounded because it's not actually fixing the problem. It's not helping her be with her negative emotions. It's just helping her avoid them. And so because it's a Band-Aid, we become habituated to it. And so we have to eat more and more and more and to the point where she was binge eating. Here's an example of somebody that got stuck in this habit loop around binge eating when it wasn't actually serving her. The childhood piece comes in because she just set that habit up as a kid. So it's important, yes. And it's also not important in the sense of if she wants to change that habit, which is why she came to see me, she wanted to change the habit. It's not about going back and trying to resolve her childhood. It happened in the past. She can acknowledge it and say, okay, yes, this happened. She can see, okay, this may have contributed to this eating habit, but it's not what's going to change it in the present. What's going to change it in the present is when you look at the neuroscience, it's about really paying attention and seeing how rewarding that behavior is now so that she can set the new habit and have her orbitofrontal cortex change that reward value, not by telling herself that she shouldn't binge, but by feeling into the direct experience as she does binge. And we're going to get into how we can break those habits. We're going to talk about habit loops and all of that in a second. But just to linger on the associations that we build in childhood, I had such an aha moment when you talked about the cake from our childhood and how we learn that cake is positive. It's celebratory. We go to a birthday party. It tastes good. We associate it with these good feelings of being at a birthday party. So then our OFC is cataloging it as positive as better than other behaviors in that comparison cataloging way that it's doing. So we learn to prefer the cake over other things that aren't associated with rewards. And I think you use the example of some vegetable, maybe broccoli in the book. You said we learn to prefer cake over broccoli. And then we repeat that a few times. We're automatically picking cake over the less rewarding behavior. So cake beats broccoli. But then after that, cake is beating feeling bad. Cake is beating boredom. Cake is beating all of these other less rewarding behaviors. So it starts off with us celebrating a birthday with cake and identifying it as a rewarding behavior, but it ends up with us 
choosing it over feeling bored or feeling uncomfortable. Can you speak to that chain, how those connections are made? I'm sure I'd be happy to. And this is a critical piece for how we set up these habits around eating. The cake as a celebration, it falls into the category of what neuroscientists describe as positive reinforcement. And that needs three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So imagine the trigger is that we see cake at the birthday party. The behavior is that we eat the cake. And the result is that we feel good. Cake tastes good. And we also associate that with the fun that we're having, the connection, the presence, all that stuff. Our brain learns, hey, next time it's time to celebrate something, have something sweet. Retirement parties, birthday, this goes on through our entire lives. Celebrations tend to involve food. That's a normal thing, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that we've got to know how that gets set up. On top of this, there's a corollary called negative reinforcement, which same elements except that something unpleasant instead of something pleasant. So the celebration's pleasant. Let's say that we're bored or we're feeling down. That unpleasant mind state triggers the eating, which then feels better because we distract ourselves or we get a little bit of a sugar rush or we focus on the pleasantness of the taste of the cake or the ice cream or the chocolate. And that becomes negatively reinforcing in the sense that it makes unpleasant things go away, at least temporarily. So those two can feed on each other, but the negative reinforcement is especially relevant here because this is where I see so many eating habits get set up. It's so common that there's actually a term that's been developed in, in the scientific literature called hedonic hunger. And it's not actually about hunger, but they just had to call it hedonic hunger because people are eating because of emotions. That's why the hedonic is about emotion. It's actually eating in the absence of hunger because of emotion. And that's all through negative reinforcement. In contrast, the true physiologic hunger is called homeostatic hunger because our body is saying, hey, you're short on calories. You need to get some in your body. So it gets us back to homeostasis, back to balance. Homeostatic hunger is very helpful for survival. Hedonic hunger is actually anti-survival because we're eating in the absence of hunger and that's not healthy for us. Should we be serving broccoli at birthday parties? <laughs> I'm sure that would go over well. <laughs> I'm asking kind of as a joke, but I do think it's interesting that we learn from our earliest ages that celebration includes some type of dessert. And I'm curious if you think there's a way to combat that association before it even happens, or if that's just going to be an association that's going to happen and we need to change the habit loops down the line. Yeah, I like that idea. So part of this would involve you know, changing things like the corn subsidy. So high fructose corn syrup isn't dirt cheap. And then developing a vegetable subsidy or something where it's easier for people to actually get affordable vegetables. So that would be a piece of this from a societal standpoint. We've got to look at the whole picture here. And I like where you're going with this, where you'd think, well, if we can just associate broccoli with celebrations, game on. And I think on one hand, yes, it wouldn't be a bad idea to serve healthy food at celebrations because then people learn to eat healthy food. And on the other hand, we're never going to outcompete the survival part of our brain, which says, hey, what's more calorically dense? 
you know? And so cake is always going to be broccoli in that category. That's an uphill battle that will always be pushing the boulder up the hill because we're trying to form those associations. That's only one piece of it. The other piece of it is that our brains are actually exquisitely wired to be able to deal with this in terms of refined sugar and things like that. And the way that that works is that nothing outcompetes the natural sweetness and fullness that we get from natural sugars. I talk about my own example in the book where I was addicted to gummy worms. They're designed to be addicted. I had to eat the whole bag. I would feel crappy the next day. And my body was like, dude, why are you doing this? This isn't so good. I was like, I don't know. I'm addicted. <laughs> don't talk to me. My mouth is full. With gummy worms, for example, you know, I don't know anybody that's been able to engineer any food to be as satisfying or making us feel as content as natural food. So when I started comparing blueberries to gummy worms, to me, it was much easier to stop eating blueberries when I was full. And they actually left me more satisfied than gummy worms. And that highlights that our bodies are all that we need. They're so wise. We just have to learn to listen to them. And somebody might be asking, well, God, I'm going to, I'm, you know, what about ice cream? You know, what about all these things that taste good? Don't get me wrong. Ice cream tastes really good. But this is where we can actually look at, and I talk in the book about the pleasure plateau. It's not just about the type of food. So for me, gummy worms, I'm just not interested in gummy worms. They just don't taste very good. I am interested in ice cream. <laughs> I love ice cream. Right? It's good. That bliss point is real. And I used to eat entire half gallons of ice cream, partly because I could, especially when I did a lot of athletics in high school and college. I could down a half gallon, you know, no problem. Looking at that now, I can't down a half gallon of ice cream and feel great. Part of this is that our body knows when is too much. I think of this as finding our pleasure plateau, and this is also exquisitely dialed in as long as we pay attention. So we can start to notice like when the next bite is not as good as the last bite. And then we hit that pleasure plateau before we go off that cliff of overindulgence. We don't need to tell ourselves that we should only have one serving of X, Y, or Z, especially if it's dessert and we're not hungry. You know, it's different when we're hungry because our body's like, get those calories in. But if it's dessert and we're really paying attention, we can ask ourselves, have I had enough? And it's much easier to coast to a stop simply by paying attention as compared to telling ourselves that we shouldn't have more. And telling ourselves we shouldn't have more actually makes us want more. So that actually can backfire. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should at least be simple. That's why for more than five years now, I've been drinking AG1. It's just one scoop mixed in water, and it makes me feel energized and focused without any kind of caffeine jitters. I discovered AG1 after a ton of research because I was looking for one simple habit I could incorporate into my day that would support my entire body and cover my nutritional bases. No matter what the rest of the day looks like, I know that I'm getting essential brain, gut, and immune health support. I just mix a scoop of AG1 into my water. I think it tastes delicious too, which I know people are always nervous about, but I think it's like a tropical vanilla flavor and I crave it, especially because I associate the flavor with feeling so good. Of course, we're always trying to eat our fruits and vegetables and balance meals over here, 
but nobody is perfect. So AG1 helps support me with 75 vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, and adaptogens. I especially love it for all of the travel I've been doing. I think it's a huge reason why I still feel so good and have avoided getting sick despite being on a plane a few times a week for so much of this year and having to eat out so often. AG1 is rigorously third-party tested, which you know I always look out for. It also has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, and no artificial anything. AG1 is one of the highest quality products to elevate your health, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. That's drinkag1.com slash Liz Moody. Check it out. Last January, I hosted a series on the pod called The Health Effects of Alcohol that was so, so informative. We learned a lot together, and ever since, I've considered myself an intentional drinker. I'm not sober, but that drink needs to really add to my experience for me to choose to have it. If that sounds intriguing to you, Athletic Brewing Company makes it so easy to give dry a try. Here's a pro tip for trying out intentional drinking. It's not all or nothing. You can have a glass of champagne to celebrate your bestie's birthday and then switch over to something equally as fun and delicious like a non-alcoholic beer for the rest of the night with no hangover or downsides. Another pro tip, if you're giving dry a try this January, it's way easier when you're sipping something with award-winning taste like athletic brewing. Athletic has so many craft brews from IPAs, extra dark brews, sours, hazies, and many more. Zach is a total beer guy. Like He goes to breweries, he does tastings, and he loves athletic brewing. The Run Wild IPA is Zach's favorite. He says it's the perfect, crisp, refreshing IPA. It's hearty without being heavy. He especially likes having one as a post-run reward. And I love the Wits Peak, which is a Belgian-style white beer. It's full of flavor, and the taste is perfect for the chilly weather. This January, give Dry a try with Athletic Brewing Co. Order online at athleticbrewing.com or find them at a store or bar nearby. Pro tip, use my code LizM at checkout to get 15% off your first online order. They have a ton of fun flavors online, including the Wits Peak that I mentioned that you cannot get in stores. So use code L-I-Z-M at checkout for 15% off your first order. Near beer. Exclusions and conditions apply. Athletic Brewing Company. Fit for all times. That implies, though, that the primary reason that we are eating the ice cream is for pleasure. So then when we are maxed out on pleasure, we stop eating the ice cream. But what if we're eating the ice cream because we're sad or we're bored, and then even if we've reached our max pleasure, if we stop eating the ice cream, we'll still be sad or bored, so we want to keep eating it? This is a very important question, so I'm I'm glad you're asking it. There's a phenomenon that goes all the way back to Buddhism that they call the hungry ghost. We can picture a ghost with a small mouth and a long, narrow esophagus and a huge belly, right? And so imagine that ghost trying to get its fill. It's never going to do it because it just can't eat fast enough to fill its belly. This image is there specifically to show people when they get stuck in these cycles of ice cream or whatever, they are cycles that they never satisfy, right? Because we eat the ice cream and it feels good for a moment, but then we have to eat more. Or as my patient who would binge on entire pizzas, she would have to eat an entire pizza and binge. 
And then she would feel crappy about doing that. So she would binge on top of that binge. In Buddhism, they call this samsara, which means endless wandering. Because we are endlessly wandering, looking for happiness, and we're never going to find it that way. So yes, ice cream tastes good, but no, ice cream is not going to fix our problems. If we're feeling sad, it might distract us for a little while, but it's not going to fix the sadness. And on top of it, it's not going to help us develop distress tolerance, like to learn to be with sadness, because that's what we really need to do. So I'll just end this by saying, it's really about, you know, when we're indulging our wants, we're ignoring and not meeting our needs. And it's at those moments when we're sad or bored or we're lonely, the best way that we can take care of ourselves is to ask ourselves, what do I need right now? And we can meet those needs instead of indulging the wants. Do you have any advice for tapping into what we actually need? Because I can reflect on moments I felt like that. And I think I would have said to you, I need a cookie. <laughs> Were you hungry at that time? Probably not. Probably okay. I just felt like a cookie would truly be comforting. And I think as I'm saying this, it's because meeting the actual need is much harder than just eating a cookie. It can feel much harder at first, yes. And when we see that eating the cookie is actually making it worse, then it becomes easier because we still need to meet the need. And now we've just added something on top of it that we have to deal with. So I would say here... Yes, we tell ourselves and the voice comes up, I need a cookie because that's just the language that we use in English. Would you say that the more accurate statement would be, I want a cookie? Yes. Yeah, because it's not meeting your needs. So here we can even just start by being honest with ourselves. And that's a great way to start is to say, do I need a cookie or do I want a cookie? That honesty is a great place to start. <laughs> Mm, that's so interesting. Yeah, I like that. Just to go back to willpower quickly, is there any reason we should be trying to increase our willpower or is that a concept we should just be leaving behind entirely? <laughs> I would say go for it and see how well it works out. Okay. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek because I'm guessing people have tried everything to increase their willpower, you know? There are no willpower pills. There are no willpower injections. There are no brain stimulation techniques that I'm aware of that are truly going to improve willpower. Why? Because if you look at it from a neuroscience standpoint, there is no seat of willpower in the brain. The closest we get to that is something called cognitive control. And that's probably more based on how rewarding a behavior is than on anything related to willpower. So there's no way to stimulate the willpower part of the brain because there isn't one. Wait, so would that mean that if we perceive somebody to have more willpower than us, it's probably just because they get less reward from the behavior that we're trying to avoid? Yes. And, you know, some people have actually done some studies on quote unquote willpower and they found that these folks have just set up habits that they then associate to willpower, but they're more habits. And how do you set up a habit? It's based on how rewarding a behavior is. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Well, that's a perfect introduction into habit loops. Can you explain in as simple of terms as possible what a habit loop is? Sure. And we touched on this a little bit earlier, but there are three elements to any habit loop, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. 
And these come in two flavors, right? Positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement, whether it's the birthday party where we see the cake, we eat the cake, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, hey, remember cake and birthday parties, this is a good thing, right? That's positive reinforcement. Or the negative reinforcement actually comes from our survival strategies of avoiding danger. Something unpleasant, our brain associates that with danger, even though it unpleasantness doesn't equal danger, especially in modern day. It could, but it doesn't always. So something unpleasant tells our brain to do something to make it go away. And then we get this, again, more dopamine firing and we learn, hey, whatever you did, you know, do that again. So with negative reinforcement, you know, let's say we feel stressed out, we eat some food. That's why it's called stress eating. <laughs> and then we get this reward where we've distracted ourselves or we've temporarily made ourselves feel better through the sugar rush, that feeds back and says, hey, next time you're stressed, you should eat. There's a reason that there's a whole category of food called comfort food, right? We eat certain foods to comfort ourselves. And those tend to be carbohydrate rich because that's what gets us to basically fall asleep. <laughs> you know, That sugar rush and crash is like, oh, what was I stressed out about? Let me take a nap. <laughs> Can you share some real life examples of habit loops, either positive ones or these negative reinforcement ones? I'd be happy to. I can give examples from my patients or folks that I've worked with in our program and also my own. I've got plenty. <laughs> well, I actually talked about the gummy worm thing that would often come at night when I was tired or lonely or bored or something like that. But I had a patient who... His name is Rob, and he gives a beautiful portrayal of his struggles with food in the hunger habit, where as a kid, he used to get panic attacks and tremendous anxiety. And he had tried everything to work with it, and he started eating fast food. He described it as his addiction. He said, my friends would hide their drug paraphernalia. I would hide the wrappers from my fast food so that people you know, didn't know that I was binging. His negative reinforcement loop was anxiety was the trigger. The behavior was eating fast food. And then the result was numbing himself. And in fact, the first time that he and I met, he came to see me actually for anxiety. And I sent him home to start mapping out his habit loops around this, this negative reinforcement process, because he didn't know that this was a habit loop. And that eating was his way to avoid the anxiety he was getting more anxious when he would eat and he just didn't know it. He didn't know how his mind worked. So the first step and the first step for anyone is to be able to recognize that they're in a habit loop and then start to map it out. Mm. And the thing that I find particularly interesting about this habit loop, about understanding habit loops, that is that Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that the more that we eat to self-soothe, the more it becomes a habit to self-soothe, and then we're not only fighting the initial impulse of all of these qualities that these foods have that draw us to them, but we're actually having to break the habit as well. So we're reinforcing the habit by engaging with the habit over time. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Even using Rob as an example by eating fast food to soothe his anxiety, he was creating a fast food addiction even when he wasn't anxious. So then the next time he feels 
anything that is sort of uncomfortable, he's wanting to use that to soothe it. Yes. So that becomes the go-to strategy for distress tolerance. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. If somebody wanted to begin to figure out where these habit loops are occurring in their life, where would you have them start? I would have them learn the word orbitofrontal cortex. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> yeah. And I say that tongue in cheek because we don't actually need to know all of this neuroanatomy to become extremely wise. And I say that because often people, they'll listen to a podcast, they'll read a book and they'll be like, oh, I know the answer, you know? And I'll say, you only know the answer when you live the answer. I think of information is like brain candy. It's like this sugar rush and we're like, oh, I want more, I want more. And then we distract ourselves by trying to get more and more information. We distract ourselves from the critical task of actually exploring that information in our own lives. And so I think of this as the only way to develop wisdom is through experience. And so experience becomes that whole non-processed food instead of the brain candy, where we can actually digest that information and it forms wisdom in our bones. That's the critical aspect here is that we can't just think our way into better health or out of bad habits. We've got to feel our way out of the old and into the new. And that feeling comes through basically leveraging that orbitofrontal cortex because we're not going to break a bad habit unless we see how unhelpful it is. And we're not going to form a new habit until we see how helpful it is. That's what our orbitofrontal cortex is for, is to say, hey, this is really good. Do it again. Form a habit of that. But we're just stuck in our old ways. So bringing awareness is essentially the key to breaking these habits. Can you share one or two pragmatic tips for cultivating that awareness? I think if you just tell people, okay, we'll go be aware when you do something of whether it's helpful or harmful. I just, I think I'd love something that feels a little bit more grounded. Oh yeah, for sure. And I talk about these three steps in the hunger habit. So let's go through the three steps and then how we can cultivate that curiosity that will support all three of them. So very simple. The first step is mapping out our habit loops and you know, it's as, and it can actually be as simple as just noticing what the behavior is. Am I eating because I'm hungry or because I'm bored or stressed or lonely or whatever, right? So just bringing that into the spotlight is the first step. That takes curiosity. And one quick question there. Are we only doing that for undesirable habits, habits that we're like, I don't want to have this habit anymore, so I'm going to bring awareness to the trigger, the behavior, and the reward in this instance? It, it's a good question. It can actually apply to both letting go of unhealthy habits, but also building healthy habits. So okay. let's run it with unhealthy habits, and then we'll run the three steps with healthy habits, and we'll see how they, they're very parallel. Okay. So map out, let's start with the unhealthy habit. Let's use stress eating as an example. So feel stress. There's a trigger, eat food. There's the behavior not because we're hungry, but because we're stressed. And then we distract ourselves. There's the reward and that feeds back. So we can just map that out. And it could be simply recognizing that we're stress eating. Oh, I'm stress eating. That's all we need for the first step. And that requires curiosity, like curious awareness, not like, oh, I'm stress eating, bad me. 
because then we get stuck in a habit loop of judging ourselves. But really, it's like, oh, here it is. This is my survival brain that's gotten taken over by the modern food engineers. Not my fault and good on me for recognizing that. The second step is leveraging that orbitofrontal cortex where we're asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? And just to highlight this, we actually did a study to see how quickly this can shift somebody's reward value. So we basically had people pay attention as they overate uh, using our Eat Right Now app. And we found that within 10 to 15 times of somebody paying attention as they overeat, that reward value drops below zero and they shift their behavior. So it doesn't take long, which makes sense because our survival brains don't have 20 times to get chased by a tiger to learn that it's dangerous, right? Those genes don't get passed on. <laughs> so asking the simple question, what am I getting from this? And feeling into our direct experience, not thinking I shouldn't do this. The shoulds don't work. You know, that joke about we should all over ourselves. Yes, it's true. Shoulding is stuck in our head. It's the feeling body that's much stronger than the thinking brain. So we got to focus on the feeling. What does it feel like? When people overeat, their stomach's like, dude, why'd you do this? You know, not so helpful. And so we become disenchanted with the overeating. It doesn't take long. It just takes curious awareness, right? So curious awareness for step one, map out the loop. Curious awareness for step two, what do I get from this? Whether it's stress eating, whether it's overeating, whatever the habit is. Step three, I call finding the bigger, better offer. And that can simply be stepping out of the old habit because it feels better not to overeat than to overeat. You know, for me, not eating gummy worms felt better than eating gummy worms. And at the same time, my brain said, well, if you're not going to have this, find something that you'll enjoy. So this is where I started discovering the joy of blueberries. <laughs> for me, they're the perfect wonder food. And apparently they're good for your brain too. So all good. So here we just find a behavior that's better it's not about telling ourselves like I should read the ingredients on this label and see that it's more nutritious for me. It's about listening to that wise body that's saying, hey, blueberries, way to go. Gummy worms, not so much. So that's the three steps. All of them require curiosity. Curious about what the habit loop is. Curious about what we're getting from it in the second step. And then even finding what is that bigger, better offer, like being curious about what's better, which could simply be not doing it. So that's the unhelpful habit. Let's run the loops with the helpful habit. So let's say blueberries, just go with the blueberry theme. I notice that when I'm hungry or even want some dessert, I eat some blueberries, right? And so I notice the habit loop. Oh, dessert time is eating fruit, pineapple, blueberries, mango, stuff like that. Pretty good. And then the second is what am I getting from this? So it's not about downing a whole pint of blueberries, but it's really paying attention and seeing how much is enough. And because they have enough fiber in them, et cetera, I actually get full with not too many, especially if I'm not hungry. So I can eat some. The bonus is that there's more for later. <laughs> you know, If it's like my favorite dark chocolate that's not the cheapest chocolate in the world, if I really pay attention, it's usually just a couple of squares and I'm good. And then I've got the rest of the bar for later. That sucker lasts a whole week and I'm satisfied, right? So with that, I can ask, what am I getting from this? Oh, I'm getting good, good stuff. And that actually blends right into the third step, which is healthy habit, game on. This is the bigger, better offer already. So does that make sense in terms of both letting go of unhealthy habits, but developing healthy ones? It does. And I love that you said the thing about downing the blueberries 
because I think your book illustrates this really beautifully. One of the things that I like about your perspective is that there's not good or bad foods. There's the way that you want to feel or don't want to feel when you're engaging with those foods. And certain foods are more engineered to play into ways that we don't want to feel. But inherently, you're evaluating your behavior around a food. You're not labeling a food as good or bad. Yes. I think we get into the judgment trap way too much. Social media doesn't help with this because we can constantly be comparing ourselves to others. And so here, I think of it as helpful and unhelpful. Is this helpful for me living a happy, healthy life or is this not helpful? And that helps us step out of the judgment zone. It's like more of a judgment-free zone. And it's like, oh, well, is this working for me or not? We can move into the learning mode as compared to being stuck in the judgment mode. Money was such a source of anxiety for me for a long time. I'm always talking about building good, healthy habits, but I didn't have any when it came to financial wellness. Once I started getting educated about my money, I began to feel empowered about it. And pretty soon I was like, how did I let this cause me so much anxiety for so long? If you are struggling just like I was, you need to check out YNAB. YNAB is an app that teaches a set of simple money habits to help you spend, save, and give without guilt or second guessing. It's one of the apps that experts I talk to recommend over and over because it's grounded in techniques that you won't see anywhere else that actually work. You start off by learning four simple core habits that are actually genius and have completely changed the way that I think about money. And then it guides you through saving so you are never caught off guard by a surprise expense again, so you feel safe and secure with money. But maybe more importantly, it also helps you fit the things that you love into your spending plan so that you know you have the money for that bachelorette party or that weekend getaway that you've been dreaming of. Also, and I love this, you can add up to six users to one account. So if you manage money as roommates or with your partner, it has got you covered. It has incredibly high ratings on all platforms and has become a huge cult hit because it's helped millions of people actually build the financial life of their dreams, even people who truly thought it was impossible. Check out YNAB and learn the habits with a one-month free trial, no credit card required, at www.yabb.com ynab.com slash Liz Moody. You'll get a month completely free and be able to see for yourself what a big difference it makes. I promise you're going to get back way more than you spend. That's www.ynab.com slash Liz Moody. I started hearing about colostrum a year or so ago, and I got so many messages from all of you. Was it hype? Was it worth it? I am super cautious about any recommendations that I give you, so I wanted to do a deep dive into the research and try it myself, which I've been doing for the past six months. And I'm happy to say that I was really pleasantly surprised by what I found. First of all, if you're like, what is colostrum? It is the first nutrition we receive in life, and it contains all of the essential nutrients our bodies need in order to thrive. The brand I tried is Armra Colostrum, and they're definitely the highest quality one that exists. The reason I wanted to try it was for my allergies. I am allergic, unfortunately, to my fur daughter, Bella, which does not stop me from cuddling her during most of my waking life. And there's really interesting research about how colostrum can help. Essentially, it reduces the pro-inflammatory cytokines that can cause allergic reactions. And a number of studies show that it helps protect and heal your gut and help feed your microbiome, both of which have downstream positive impacts on allergies. 
I've personally seen a huge difference in my itchy eyes, my stuffiness, and all of that, which is a huge win for me. And if you suffer from gut issues on their own, obviously that research would point to it being helpful there. It also has been shown to fight viral and bacterial infections in the gut, which is great for travel, but just also if you feel like anything is off and you want to create a better state of balance. There's also great research around its ability to regulate your immune system And that inflammation regulation will have so many other impacts, including helping with skin health, helping with energy, and more. Armor Colostrum is a sustainably sourced colostrum concentrate that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients. While most colostrums undergo heat pasteurization, Armor Colostrum uses proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that preserves the integrity of the bioactive nutrients to guarantee the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum on the market. Armor Colostrum also sources their colostrum from grass-fed cows from their co-op of dairy farms in the USA, and they strictly source only the surplus supply of colostrum after calves are fully fed, which was so important to me. Armor Colostrum goes through extensive auditing and third-party testing to ensure their colostrum meets the highest bar of purity and efficacy, which includes being certified glyphosate-free. If any of that sounds good to you, we have worked out a special offer just for my audience. Receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Liz Moody or enter Liz Moody to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A dot com slash Liz Moody. I want to linger a little bit on developing that awareness. One, because I do think if there was a golden nugget at the root of your teachings, it is like awareness will set you free. I feel like, Mm. would you agree with that? Oh yeah. We should make a t-shirt. I love it. (laughs) But I think it can be hard to tap into that awareness when, as we've talked about, things are engineered to mimic pleasure or to bring you right to the precipice of satisfaction. And when we've been given a lot of societal messaging around, well, this is what your body should look like. This is how you should feel. It can be really hard to tap into, well, how do I actually feel in this moment? I'm curious if you have any other tips for really tapping into what our body is trying to tell us, either in moments of consuming or engaging with a habit or just in general. There are two things that I would bring forward. So one is to check to see if there's a judgmental voice in our head because that colors the world and how we see it. So this goes back to the shoulding as an example. You know, I should not eat this because I want to look this way. That, oh, I shouldn't eat this is often playing in the background so much to the point where we don't even notice that it's playing. It just feels like that is who we are. So being able to bring some kindness to ourselves and just start to see that voice and see it as a voice and a voice that we can choose to listen to or not based on how much it's helping us live that happy, healthy life helps us be able to be free from it. So awareness does set us free. I love that. But kindness is awareness's best friend because we can be aware and judging ourselves or we can be aware and kind to ourselves. And those are infinitely apart in terms of how they feel and what the results are. So that's the first piece, but I want to pause there. Does that make sense? That makes 
complete sense. And I love it conceptually because when you start to become aware of these habit loops and the whys behind why we're engaging in the behaviors that we're engaging in, if you add in this layer of judgment, of lack of kindness, you're actually going to be triggering more negative habit loops. Bingo. Yep. So it's like habit loops on top of habit loops that we're trying. And then we start to fight with ourselves. And then there's another habit loop on top of that and it just spirals out of control. Yeah. Yeah. The second thing I would say is just doubling down on the power of curiosity where I think of it this way, pragmatically, we can be checking to see if we're in the mindset of, oh no, right? So, oh no, here's this craving or, oh no, here's this forbidden food or I'm going to call ahead to the restaurant or look online at their menu so that I can pick ahead of time what I'm going to get. So there's not a gotcha moment where I'm stuck when I'm starving and I'm like, oh, I really want this. So the curiosity really is a superpower in terms of helping us notice those oh no moments that feel closed down, contracted. It's that itchy urge that says do something. And then we can flip that by really just dialing into the feeling of curiosity. It's like, oh, what does this feel like in this moment? And so instead of fighting an urge or running away from it, you know, what we resist persists, we can lean in and say, oh, well, what does this craving feel like? Which helps us be with it. It also helps us learn that cravings aren't as bad as they feel. I actually had a patient who came into my office and said, I feel like my head's going to explode if I don't smoke the cigarette. Like they can feel really strong. And we can learn, oh, they're just these sensations, they're these thoughts, and they're not as big and bad as we think that they are. I've heard somewhere, I have no idea where, that a craving will subside after like 15 minutes. Is there a length of time <laughs> that a craving typically lasts? Yeah. It's funny you say that. I'm sure there are studies where people look at the average length of a craving. This is tremendously individual. So it depends on what, if it's a food craving, is it a type of food? What's their emotional state? So it's very variable. Yet it's funny you mentioned 15 because I get that question all the time. And I had somebody go and meticulously time all of her cravings. <laughs> and the longest one she ever had was 13 minutes. So it's actually, you know, right around that same time period. Well, I think people are looking for that number because the idea is if I can ride it out for that long, it will dissipate. Mm. Well, they need to be careful here because if we're gritting our teeth and trying to resist a craving, what we resist persists. And so that's going to be very different than just opening to it. I like the saying, the only way out is through. If we paradoxically shift gears and turn toward our experience and open to our experience and welcome it in, with that lack of resistance, that allows these thoughts and feelings to flow through us more quickly. Mm. I've had that experience with my anxiety. I struggle with anxiety I have for years and years, and it's been incredibly severe at times. And I don't know what book I read it in, but when I was agoraphobic and I couldn't get out of bed, there was this line in this book that was like lean into your anxiety instead of trying to push it away. And it's been probably the most transformative thing in my experience with anxiety. That's great to hear. And I write a lot about that acceptance and allowing uh, in the Unwinding Anxiety book as well. It's very much in line with what I've seen in my own research in my lab. 
can developing awareness outside of the moment of cravings be helpful for dealing with cravings? Like if you develop a meditation practice, is that going to help you within these habit loops? Certainly, you know, I've been meditating about 25 years, so I was a strong proponent of meditation. One thing that I've also seen, though, is that people put meditation on their to-do list, like I should exercise, I should eat healthy, I should meditate. There's the shooting again. And I also, probably for the first 10 years that I was meditating, I didn't really know why I was supposed to be meditating. And fortunately, I was thick-headed enough, I just stuck with it. And then I learned, oh, meditation is really about learning to be aware and to bring that curiosity into our everyday activities. So I say that because certainly it can be helpful. And if we don't have time to meditate, it doesn't mean that we can't learn to develop our curiosity muscle. And so I would say, yes, helpful to meditate and use it as a time to isolate ourselves from all the distractions so we can really explore what curiosity feels like. And so when we have an urge to do something or when we have an unpleasant thought come up, instead of immediately distracting ourselves with our phones or something, we can really turn toward that experience with curiosity as taking us by the hand and saying, oh, it's not so bad. You know, let's explore this. So meditation can be really helpful for being able to dial in the curiosity, and then we can apply that throughout our day. Can you explain the idea of a disenchantment database? <laughs> yeah. This goes back to my favorite word, the orbitofrontal cortex. That orbitofrontal cortex, if it has set up a habit of, let's say, with a clean plate club, overeating, if it's done it a lot and it's set up as a habit, if we take one meal and we don't overeat and it feels good, our brain's going to say, I'm not sure I believe you because I've overeaten so many times that like this may be an anomaly. In science, we talk about this signal to noise ratio. If there's a little signal above, you know, think of the old habit as all the noise and there's a little signal, we're not going to believe it until we repeat that experiment enough that there's, we call it, you know, get statistical significance around that difference. And we can say that's actually true, even though it's not that different. So we can do things over and over and over to develop that disenchantment database by asking, for example, what do I get when I overeat? And we feel into the, the results of that. The other way to do this even more quickly is to really feel into a very strong experience. So for example, holiday meals are great ones to develop large data points that are very different than the noise. And our body's like, yeah, that is true. I don't need to do that again. <laughs> we can just remember what it was like the last time we overate at a holiday meal. And it's strong enough that one or two data points there, that's all we need. And we're like, dude, I don't want to do that again. And again, it's not about telling ourselves that we shouldn't do it again. It's about feeling in and asking, what did I get from this last time? So that we can kind of bring that into our working memory so that when we're in the middle of the meal, we can remember, oh yeah, when I ate that third helping of pie, I was in coma or my stomach hurt after that so that we can actually learn, you know, I can enjoy one piece as compared to three and I actually enjoy it more because I don't feel terrible afterwards. What if it's a habit that does feel really good, but we want to break it? I'm thinking about drinking alcohol. I know a lot of people want to drink less, 
But the thing they keep coming back to is, well, I feel less inhibited. I feel more shiny, more sparkly when I've had a few drinks, not drinking to the point of excess, but when I've had a few drinks. And I'm always telling people, because I'm really big on intentional drinking, like you are shiny and sparkly at your core. You just need to let that out. But people will say, well, no, the alcohol is letting me let down my inhibition. It's the thing that's making me feel good in social environments. So how do we get rid of that feeling of like, there is a real reward there that I'm trying to get, but I don't want to have this habit? That's a great question. So in general, if we don't have adverse consequences from a habit, we're not going to break it full stop, right? So here, and I think the drinking one's a really good example because so many people have social anxiety and the only way they've learned to temporarily deal with it, because again, it doesn't help them actually deal with it. It just pushes it off to the side and disinhibits them. That's what alcohol does. That can be a very strong habit. That can be really hard to break until somebody sees both how unrewarding it is and how rewarding a different behavior is. So for example, I don't know if how many people notice this for themselves, but I'm noticing more and more that even a couple of drinks affects my sleep, even if I don't have them late at night. And I'm also learning to be more comfortable in my own skin. I certainly had plenty of social anxiety in college and afterwards. And, you know... <laughs> Maybe I just don't care as much what people think about me or whatever, but being able to find that shiny sparkle and trust it. So for example, you know, how many people have not been at the top of their game, let's say in terms of social interactions because they've had a couple of drinks, right? And then they look at it afterwards and like, well, I was disinhibited and did I say something stupid? So here they can learn and maybe you can help them up their game in terms of like, yeah, we all have this shiny sparkle. We just have to trust it. And then they can see, oh, shiny sparkle. I'm less likely to say something stupid and more likely to just be myself, which authenticity is better than any drink I know. So we can learn to trust that authenticity and that authentic self and see how rewarding that is. Well, and we would be adding to your earlier point, the idea of like, oh, I didn't sleep well, or oh, I said something that I'm not that proud of to our disenchantment database, right? So that we're less likely to want to engage in that behavior in the future. Absolutely. What about the idea that we deserve a little treat? Like life is hard and we should get to have a cookie <laughs> if we want to have a cookie. Yeah. Well, have a cookie. More specifically, we can look at the difference between self-care and self-indulgence. You know, this goes back to I want a cookie that you mentioned earlier. So if we can even just, if it's been a hard day, we can ask ourselves, what do I need? If it's been a hard day, we're really worn down. A cookie is probably not going to actually help us besides that brief treat taste. What might really help us? Taking a bath. I have a massage gun. I can't afford a daily massage, so that's why I use a massage gun. So, so it's like, what do I need? I need some muscle relaxation that doesn't come from a pill or alcohol, right? Something that's actually going to help my muscles recover and help me feel good and help me relax. For some people, that's a bath. 
For some people, it's simply just a hot shower. For some people, it's listening to some music. There are so many things that are true self-care that don't come in the form of refined carbohydrates. I will also say that sometimes it's daylighting a more fundamental overhaul. I had a period of months recently where I wanted a little treat all the time and my life was really stressful and I was like, you deserve a little treat. You've earned this. You're dealing with a lot right now. And what I needed to do was not to give myself a little treat three or four times a day. I needed to completely change my relationship with my work life that was causing this immense amount of stress on a daily basis. Yeah. That's a beautiful example of meeting your needs instead of feeding your wants. You know, you scratch that itch of a want and then it itches more. Yeah. And then you're masking this greater thing that would actually bear more powerful, more lasting results. Yep. Absolutely. The last thing that I want to touch on is tracking things, tracking (laughs) calories, tracking sleep, all of these types of things, tracking steps and how that relates to our desire for control and certainty. Can you make that connection (laughs) for us? Sure. So our brains don't like uncertainty. This is where deprivation curiosity comes in, where we're deprived of information and our brain says, go get that information. So our brains like to try to to control the world as much as possible, but most of the world we don't actually have control over. Even knowing that can be helpful, right? Okay, maybe I don't have control over this. So with tracking, we can try to control our eating. There are many problems with this, including how notoriously inaccurate these standard trackers are and also how individual we are and you know nothing is dialed in as much as our own experience, our body's going to tell us everything that we need to know. So when we track, we're scratching this itch of uncertainty and trying to make it certain, but we're actually pulling ourselves farther away from ourselves because we are trusting an app or a step counter or something like that more than we're trusting our own experience. And that's a problem. This is where people not only become kind of disembodied where they don't know what they actually need because they haven't paid attention to their bodies for a long time. But then they also hurt themselves. You know, there's tons of stories of people getting addicted to counting their steps. And I talk about an example in the book, somebody was like, you know, trying to nail like 20 or 30,000 steps a day. Guess what? He injured himself. (laughs) And ironically, when somebody's not paying attention to their body, they're actually getting in the way of healthy behavior because they're doing things because of some number as compared to listening to what they actually need. One of the top questions I get is what I use for birth control after making the switch from hormonal options. And I will not stop singing from the rooftops about my absolute love for the Natural Cycles app. It's changed my life so much to have a completely non-hormonal, non-invasive form of birth control, which I never thought was possible. I've gotten my libido back, my anxiety has gone significantly down, and while I'm not anti-hormonal birth control by any means, I'm just so happy this option exists. Natural Cycles is a leading women's health company that created the world's first FDA-cleared birth control app. The app's algorithm uses hormone-driven changes in body temperature to let users know when they're fertile or not fertile. It's 93% effective with typical use and 98% effective with perfect use. 
The app uses a color-coded system, and every day, based on your temperature, you'll get red or green days if you're in natural cycles birth control mode. Red days mean you're fertile and you should abstain or use protection. Green means that you are good to go at it however you would like. I love natural cycles because it's grounded in research. There is a proven connection between body temperature and ovulation. Right before ovulation, progesterone levels start to rise, and progesterone actually increases your body temperature. This change in body temperature is what the app's algorithm looks for to let users know when they're fertile or not fertile. It's really different than just taking your own temperature and tracking. Your temperature is going into an algorithm developed by a female physicist, Alina, who was on the team that discovered the Higgs boson particle, which led to the Nobel Prize for Physics. And they're doing a bunch of crazy science to make the predictions way more accurate than what we can do at home. We're all different, so I think it's important to be aware of all of the options out there when it comes to something as personal as birth control. I have loved using natural cycles as my preferred birth control method, so I am thrilled that listeners of the Liz Moody podcast can get to try it for themselves. You can use code Liz at naturalcycles.com to get 15% off an annual subscription plus a free thermometer or go to naturalcycles.app slash Liz. Again, that is code Liz at naturalcycles.com. Natural Cycles is for 18 and over and does not protect against STIs. It takes a lot for a health supplement company to wow me, but Symbiotica really breaks the mold. If you haven't discovered them yet, they make really different products than any other supplement company I've seen before. They have a lot, so I highly recommend that you check out their website and take their quiz to find out what's best for your specific goals. But I wanted to call out a few of my personal favorites. First of all, the topical magnesium. You all know I love magnesium, and I've always wanted a topical spray that wasn't sticky, that felt good and luxurious to use, and that actually let the magnesium absorb into my body, which requires DMSO as an ingredient, which I have actually never seen in any other product. If you have achy muscles or sore feet, this is literal heaven, and I also love it before bed to help with sleep. And then I have become increasingly interested in minerals. We talk a lot about vitamins, but adequate minerals are so key for energy. And unfortunately, it's become harder to get adequate minerals because our soil is so depleted of them. The Symbiotica Shilajit supplement is one of the best mineral supplements that I've found. And the research around Shilajit is profound. There's robust human and animal research that shows it acts on ATP in a way that significantly helps restore and create energy, which is one of the biggest things that I love it for as a low-caffeine consumer. There's also robust research around its anti-inflammatory properties, its brain-protective properties, and more. I think of it more as a whole food than a supplement. It's a naturally occurring resin, and I just mix a little bit of it into my afternoon tea or my decaf coffee drinks. And like all Symbiotica products, there are no additives, fillers, toxins, or artificial flavors. Of course, I have a special discount for you. You can use code LizMoody to get 15% off plus free shipping on subscription orders. Again, that's code LizMoody for 15% off on symbiotica.com. Are you in general opposed to step trackers, sleep trackers, calorie trackers? Do you not recommend them? Well, we learn the best through feedback. And sometimes there are subtle aspects of our experience that we aren't aware of that a tracker might be able to bring to light. 
So for example, I've been impressed over the last couple of years how sleep trackers have gotten better, even on wearables, where they can kind of tell us things that we might not notice. So for example, I have a Garmin watch and it measures my resting heart rate. And there was a time where my resting heart rate went up and it was about a day before I had some upper respiratory infection that was coming on. And it was like, oh, something's going on here because it's different than my baseline. And then it stayed up and I don't remember exactly, but it went down maybe before my symptoms completely resolved. It was like, okay, you're on the mend here. I don't have conscious awareness of my resting heart rate. <laughs> so something like that was, you know, is it, it's not like it changed anything significant. It was like, okay, hey, be on the lookout, take care of yourself. This might be a time to rest because there might be illness coming on. And it's not specific. It could be something else. So things like that can be helpful to some degree as long as we don't rely on them over our own experience. My wife, one thing that helped her was seeing very clearly how drinking closer to bedtime really messed up her sleep <laughs> because it totally messes with REM sleep and other types of sleep cycles. Yeah, that's why my husband stopped drinking. It, he yeah. was seeing on his sleep tracker that his sleep was massively being impacted on nights that he drank and it was one-to-one -one, like clear as day and it was the motivation that he needed to make a change. Yeah. So we can read all the studies and see that alcohol affects our sleep, but it's really hard to argue with our own experience. And it's hard to know because you're asleep, <laughs> you know, what your sleep cycles are. So that's where a tracker can help bring to light information that we might not have access to otherwise. But that's very different than a calorie counter. I would run far away from calorie counters because they just divorce us from our own experience and they're not accurate. You need accurate feedback to be able to use it and they're just not accurate. The other part of that, the uncertainty part, it seems like a critical part of writing our relationship with food, with habits, with all these things is developing more of a comfort with uncertainty. So I'm curious mm -hmm. if you have any advice for that. I do. It's called curiosity. <laughs> and to build on that a little bit, we tend to live most of our lives in our comfort zone, right? When there's uncertainty, our brain says, hey, find something certain and make that a habit. That's why we're comfortable. And that's all about, you know, making sure we're not in danger and we can't be on constantly on the lookout for danger because that's just going to wear us down. So we find our comfort zones, our routines, our habits. And we're like, this is how I make coffee in the morning. This is how I drive home from work, all these things. So we live a lot of our lives in our comfort zones and then something throws us out of our comfort zone. It could be simply there's a detour or some, the road is closed on our way home from work. And oh no, suddenly it's a a national alert that there's a problem. It's like, come on, you know, I, this is okay. I can't go this way, but it feels like the world is ending in that moment until we have our phone reroute us. <laughs> like, okay, I can handle this. But that highlights how we flip back and forth between our comfort zone and our panic zone. There's actually a very critical zone in between that rarely do people hang out in, which is our growth zone. And that growth zone is about bringing curiosity into moments that are different. I think of it this way. We can train ourselves to ask the question when something is not in our comfort zone. Oh, is this dangerous or is it simply different? A 
road closed on my way home from work is not dangerous. It's different. And so instead of freaking out, I can go, oh, and instead of going, oh, no, this is terrible. The sky is falling. I can go, oh, this is different. I hope if somebody had an accident, they're okay. And then I can go, oh, what do I need to do? Well, let me ask my phone to help me get home. And so I can learn to live more and more in my growth zone by bringing curiosity into situations and simply asking that question, you know, is this dangerous or is this different? And then I can lean in. And it's amazing. We actually learn a lot more <laughs> when we're in our growth zone. That's why it's called the growth zone. You know, Carol Dweck highlighted this in educational research a long time ago, where she talked about fixed versus growth mindset. And that's really what this is all about. A fixed is all about the comfort, rigid zone. This is what I always do. Whereas the growth zone is like, oh, this is different. We live in an ever-changing world. So it's more adaptive to be adaptable. And that's where our growth mindset and the growth zone comes in. I love that. Okay. I just want to do a really quick speed round because your research about all this stuff applies to all sorts of habits that we want to break, right? Not just habits around food. And we've been really focused around habits around food. So I want to just give you a few quick other habits that a lot of people find unhelpful. And I would love one concrete tip to break each of these habits, if that's okay with you. Let's do it. Okay. We have how to stop snoozing your alarm. Mm -hmm. Be curious. <laughs> so this going to be your answer for all of them. I'm not telling. <laughs> Can you say how that applies specifically <laughs> to the alarm? So we can ask ourselves, what do I get when I snooze the alarm versus what do I get when I get up? Is it just a habit of snoozing? And is that more rewarding than not snoozing and getting up? You get to stay in bed, which is better. Certainly, you get to stay in bed. And so this could also come down to, okay, am I not taking care of myself because I'm not getting enough sleep? Right? So... If we're not getting enough sleep, snoozing the alarm is not actually as helpful as just letting ourselves sleep because we've just woken ourselves up, right? So we can really ask ourselves, am I meeting my needs by snoozing the alarm or am I feeding my wants? Mm. Okay. I've also noticed I will lay in bed until I don't feel groggy anymore thinking like, oh, that means it's the time to get up. But getting up is always the thing that makes me not feel groggy. So I'll just <laughs> stay in bed for like hours waiting for that feeling, but I have to get up to feel that way. <laughs> this is where you can play with finding that bigger, better offer. And it's like, okay, it feels like if I lay in bed until I'm not groggy, that's the time to get up. But that's a correlation that does not necessarily equal causation. You know, So you could play with the experiment. Well, what's it like to throw this leg over the side of the bed? Okay, that leg's over. And then let me throw the other leg over the side of the bed. Well, I'm half sitting up. I might as well sit up, you know? And is it, do I wake up more quickly and have more energy and more time in the day by simply getting up as compared to laying in bed? My husband often physically drags my body out of bed, which I'm not sure is the best <laughs> habit. Okay. Well. <laughs> Staying up late to watch TV or scroll on social media when you should be sleeping. Curiosity. Same thing where we can ask ourselves, what am I getting from this, from staying up late? Am I meeting my needs or am I indulging my wants? And often, and I can say this from personal experience, when we're so tired, it's hard to physically get up from the couch and turn off the television and go to bed. And so what I do is just ask myself, am I truly taking care of myself by not pushing the button, turning off the television? 
And if I turn off the television, I'm halfway there because then it's not distracting me as much. Mm. Reaching for our phones all the time when we want to be on them less. I think this one's interesting because like the engineered food, we have real addictive qualities going on here. Oh, yeah. Cornell West described it beautifully. He said, these are weapons of mass distraction. And so they are exquisitely engineered, especially when you load them up with things that beep and ping, like social media, email, text messaging. We get this thing called intermittent reinforcement, which is the stickiest type of learning. It's like a slot machine in our pocket that we pay for. So absolutely, our phones are designed to be addictive. I mean, the phones themselves are the vehicle for the addiction. It's really the things on our phones. And if we know how our mind works, we can learn to work with our mind and then the phone becomes this neutral arbiter where it's like, okay, I can use my phone to navigate around a crash. I can reroute myself, but I'm not so addicted to my phone that I have to check my text messages while I'm driving, which is more dangerous than drunk driving. So we can learn to master our own minds and it really comes back to this three-step process. Of the habit loop. Yeah, yeah recognize it, ask, what am I getting from this? And then find the bigger, better offer, which often is simply not being glued to our phones. Is the thing that people are usually getting from their phones connection or is it something different? Superficially, people think that they're connected, but when they're sitting there on their phone on a date, how much are they connecting? Yes. So what is the thing we often think we're getting from our phones that we need to create a bigger, better offer then? Well, we're scratching an itch of whether it's uncertainty. You know, if our phone beeps, we don't know who texted or called or, you know, liked our social media post. So if we turn all those things off, some people just delete TikTok and whatnot because they're so addicted to it. The class I teach in the fall at Brown uh, University, we actually have students like go through a habit for the semester and a lot of them pick social media. And first I have them just try to do all the things that they've tried, which is all willpower based. And then they fail by mid-semester and they're like, well, that didn't work. And then we explore what actually works, which is asking, you know, what am I getting from this? And they're there in college to develop these lifelong friendships that they're not actually developing and they're missing out on. And so then they're like, wait a minute, I'm not here to post on social media. I'm actually in college to meet really cool people. I'm surrounded by them. They have this wake up call where they're like, wow, my phone isn't where I want to be spending my time. That's so interesting. That's really powerful. Like, yeah, that's really powerful. Okay, let's do two more. Procrastinating when we want to get a task done. Hmm, that's a tough one. Curiosity. <laughs> So we can ask, what do I get from procrastinating? I'm just putting it off versus just recalling the last time we actually got something done and we can leverage that completion bias, which is like, hey, check that thing off your list. It feels good. Mm. I procrastinate because I fear I won't do tasks to the level that I would like to do them. Yeah, it's funny because there are two pieces of procrastination. One is the anxiety, like, and the other is perfectionism. So you're talking about the perfectionism piece. And so I think of here is good enough is better than not done. <laughs> That's how I get anything done. Yeah. And then you recall what it's like to get it done versus not get it done. It feels better to get it done. And then you can forgive yourself for not being perfect, right? Okay. Last one. Buying things we don't need, even when we've promised ourselves that we will be more frugal. Hmm. 
Well, how would you answer this? Does it start with a C? Cookie. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, obviously I'm being facetious here. So here we can bring curiosity in as well. And we can ask ourselves, what did I get when I bought something that I didn't need? Was I scratching the itch of a want or actually meeting a need? I have a question because this one and some of the other ones, the social media one particularly, I think sometimes the need is validation or self-worth. Like if I buy this dress, people will tell me I look pretty and I'll have validation in that way. If I post this post on social media, I'll get likes, I'll feel validated. That's a hard need to meet by yourself. Yeah. So if we scratch that itch, we're going to become more and more dependent upon it. So let me ask the expert. Liz Moody, what would she tell people about their internal sparkle and how to find that as compared to scratching that itch of social validation? Yeah, probably that the more you realize you don't need to rely on these other things, the more validated you are in your inherent self-worth. And who sparkles more? The person who doesn't need the extra components. Ooh, that sounds pretty good. Okay. Dr. Jed, I so appreciate this conversation. This was absolutely amazing. Do you want to tell us a little bit in your own words about your beautiful new book? Oh, well, it's called The Hunger Habit. When I got into it, we developed this Eat Right Now program and had really gangbuster results. Uh, this is an app-based program that we developed and to the point where it's now uh, the first CDC recognized diabetes prevention program that's based primarily on mindfulness training. So we got all these great data. I'd been doing this program. We run a weekly group for anybody using the digital therapeutic that can join the group. We can go through any struggles people are having. So it's really fun. And it gives me all these stories around where people have struggled. And the book is really backboned by these amazing stories that people have been generous enough to share and be vulnerable with their own struggles. And then we've woven together with the science, the background science of like why we were not hungry, but also with how we can actually shift our habitual eating patterns, whether it's overeating, stress eating, eating junk food or whatnot. That's all come from the research in my lab. It ended up being a, a labor of love in the sense of like, this is what I would want to read, you know, if I struggled this way. I absolutely loved it. Can you just leave us with one homework assignment, something that we can all do the moment we turn off this podcast to begin to have a better relationship with our cravings? Well, there are two, and I'll start with just check to see how many times you get stuck in a habit loop of beating yourself up. You know, I shouldn't have this. I should be able to deal with this. I should, I should, I should. And then just take a moment to just notice the last time you were kind to yourself and what that feels like and feel into that. That's what I would say. The second thing I would say is curiosity, but I've ever <laughs> oversold curiosity. But it, the kindness piece, I think, is cannot be oversold. It's so critical. Well, and going back to the habit loops, the more you practice kindness, the more you're going to be creating these positive reinforcement habit loops around kindness. Very well said, Liz Moody. I love that. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for this conversation. And thank you for everything that you're doing for the world. It's really appreciated. Uh, it was my pleasure. It was really my pleasure. I enjoyed this very much. 
I love him. He is so charming and funny and brilliant. And I feel like just doing this interview rewired my brain. So I cannot wait to actually start implementing everything. His book is called The Hunger Habit, and I highly recommend pre-ordering it right now. It's an incredible way to support an author's work, and it is such a good book. We all know someone struggling with breaking habits and dealing with cravings. I feel like that's literally all of us. So please send links to this episode to your friends, your family, your coworkers, your partner. There is so much to discuss in here, like the willpower stuff. Oh my God, I was like, Zach, you need to hear this. And you're like a hero. You're swooping in and helping people meet their goals. And on top of that, it is the best way to support the podcast. So it is a win, win, win. If someone shared a link with you and you are new to the podcast, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. Make sure that you're following on whatever platform you like to listen on. All you have to do is go to the main podcast page. That's the one that lists all of the Liz Moody podcast episodes, and you'll see the word follow under the logo on Spotify. And then there's a little follow with a plus sign button on the top right of that same page on Apple Podcasts. This way, you will not miss out on any new episodes. They will appear right in your feed every single Wednesday. And you do not want to miss out because we have some very exciting ones coming up, including an episode all about inflammation, what it is, when it's useful, how to get rid of it, and another that will help even the biggest pessimists become an optimist. And do not forget to grab a copy of my book at 100waystochangeyourlife.com. Okay, I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday for the next episode of the Liz Moody Podcast. I have a product that is going to change your life. I've recommended this to so many people, and they're all floored. It's basically a perfect dupe for the viral Laneige lip mask, but a million times better and with ingredients that are clinically proven to help dry lips and actually good for you, which is important because you're essentially eating anything that goes on your lips. It is the Osmia Lip Repair Overnight Mask, and it feels like heaven. And you're going to want one for yourself and also to stock up and give them as gifts because they are the best present. They help my dry lips when nothing else works, and I will never be without mine now. And while you're on the Osmia site, you are going to want to stock up on the bar soaps. This is the original product that Dr. Sarah Villafranco, the founder, created, and they have converted me to bar soaps after years of not being able to take the plunge. They're cured longer, so they last way longer than any other bar soap I have ever found, which is amazing for travel. I have been traveling so much recently, and I've had literally the same bar of soap, and they smell amazing, and they do not dry out your skin. Go with the scent that speaks to your soul, but coffee mint is my personal favorite. Finally, if you remember Sarah's pod episode, she has a whole line of products that help with skin conditions like perioral dermatitis, which is when you get red and broken out around your mouth, eczema, and acne, even when nothing else works. She's famous for this. So start with the black clay facial soap and the purely simple face cream if you are like, oh yes, that is me. If you would like to try any Osmia skincare products for yourself, they have so generously created a code for the Liz Moody podcast listeners. Code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com. Once again, code Liz Moody is good for 20% off your first order with Osmia at osmiaskincare.com.